Of course, tonight is Bible question and answer, which means we won't be just in one text. So make sure you're prepared to turn back and forth as we look at a, a lot of different passages and some really good questions and uh, hopefully some answers that can be at least somewhat helpful. Let's uh, begin with a question coming off of this morning's message. It says this, in many books and sermons today, we hear the idea that we as sinners are responsible for murdering Jesus. One commentator even stated, quote, until we understand the cross as something done by us, we will never understand the cross as something done for us. But as we looked at this morning and the consistent testimony of Acts uh, also shows, the Bible seems always to hold the Jewish leaders responsible for Jesus' murder. What are your thoughts? Is the current view accurate or helpful? And I think that the answer to the question is it probably depends on the person. Um, I understand the commentator's point of view that you quoted there. Uh, It is very easy for people to want to sort of distance responsibility and say, well, the Romans killed Jesus or the Jews killed Jesus and not personalize it and say, well, it was my sin uh, that held him there, to quote from a, a, a contemporary song, uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. So if, it's a, if it is a person who wants to do that and put it at arm's distance, well, the, the Romans killed him, the Jews killed him, then it's probably helpful to try to drive home the point of personalize it that it was our sin. Of course, even ultimately, you need to say this the right way, the Father gave his Son. So when you try to answer the question, who is responsible for the death of Jesus, there are at least four correct answers. God the Father is responsible in the sense he ordained it from before the foundation of the world. The Jews were the ones behind it, as we saw this morning. The Romans carried it out, but it was our sin that was the focus and necessitated him dying. So um, I don't know that I would make the statement that you quoted from the commentator necessarily, but I don't think there's anything, you know, egregious about it or terribly wrong. Um, Clearly, as you said, uh, the book of Acts, as you go through it, it continually points back to the Jewish leaders being the ones pushing and responsible, but it doesn't eliminate the the other parties, if you will, to get the full picture of why, you know, who is responsible for the death of Jesus. All right, next question says this. Rather than turning to a passage again, it's a little more general. It says, uh, I was reading the commentary on Revelation 6, and it talked about a, a series of seven when talking about the judgments of the book of Revelation. Now, just to refresh your memory in case you, you're not familiar or you've forgotten, the book of Revelation, especially chapters 6 through 18, are sort of held together, or maybe the better way to say is the story flows from three sets of judgments. First of all, there are seven seals, but the six seals, the first six seals, each contain a judgment, but the seventh seal doesn't really contain a judgment, only in the sense that it opens or paves the way for seven trumpet judgments. So the first six are specific judgments, then the seventh trumpet isn't a judgment per se, other than the fact that it sort of opens the way for the seven bowl or vile judgments. So if you study the book of Revelation, you'll know that the the story of it, or maybe the better way to say the chronology of it, flows around these six judgments, or these three series of six or three series of seven judgments. And then every now and then there's a pause or an interlude that tells you some more 
I like when you go to chapter 11 and you have the two special witnesses. Chapter 13, the two beasts of the end times. Chapter 12 gives you this heavenly vision of why all this is going on. Satan's hatred for Israel, etc. But again, the story flows or the chronology goes uh, from these uh, three series of judgments. So the question is this. This commentary talked about a series of seven when talking about the judgment. It also said they were a single series of three movements. What is this, and do you agree? Well, yes, I agree, because I think what the commentary is saying is just what I was describing there, that even though each of these sets of judgments are individual or independent in one sense, you have the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, they clearly are interrelated because the seventh seal opens the way for the trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet opens the way for the bowl or the vile judgment. So I think that's all that is being said there. I think this came out of the Bible knowledge commentary, and there was a quote there. Uh, I think that's accurate, and I think that's all it's saying is there's a single series of three movements. So it's looking at all judgment basically is the theme. So you've got a, a singular theme of judgment in three different movements as illustrated by the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. All right, next question. Turn back to the book of Genesis for the answer here. And this is a youngster who is um, probing some issues that do tend to get a little bit confusing to some people and even got some, you can't quite see in there, some great artwork on her question from there. So, all right. Um, But uh, she says this, how did Cain and Abel get married or have children because there were no more women on the earth? And who hasn't had that question posed? A lot of times it comes, you know, from skeptics. Well, you know, you can't trust the book of Genesis. Can't take it literally because, you know, who did these guys marry? There was just Adam and Eve, and then they had children. And so who did the sons marry, etc.? Well, the answer is found in Genesis 5.4. Uh, after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. And clearly what happened is that the sons married some of the daughters. Now, today you just panic over that thought. And, you know, you freak out about that idea because the day and age in which we're living, because of all the years from creation and the degeneration of the gene pool, it's a terrible thing to marry one of your relatives because you have the potential of, you know, uh, mental retardation, other different birth defects. But um, back in the days of Genesis, when people were living 905 years, 969, you didn't have the I don't know if I'm explaining it technically, but the degeneration of the gene pool or, or of genetics, etc., um, it was not uncommon for uh, there to be marrying of sisters or half-sisters or cousins or that type of thing. doesn't mean it's something that ought to be done today, but uh, that's the simple answer is that, there, that that's clearly the only option, and that's how Cain and Abel uh, were able to marry. All right, next question says this. In the New Jerusalem... Will there be children? If so, will they stay children forever since nobody gets old? Um, we, this is a question in these types of questions that you can't ab- uh, answer with absolute certainty, but there are, I think, hints at least sometimes in Scripture. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is talking about our resurrected bodies. What are the resurrected bodies of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem going to be like? And Paul tells us a few things. He maybe doesn't answer all our questions, but he does give us some details. For one thing, he says that, as you have indicated here, that the new bodies will be incorruptible. 
And also, he says, they will be immortal. Now, immortal means not subject to death. Incorruptible means not subject to decay. So our new bodies will be bo both immortal and incorruptible because theoretically, you could be one or the other. In other words, you can have a body that's immortal, never dies, but not incorruptible. It could get old and, you know, get diseased, but it's just you never die. Or you could flip that around and say, well, you know, you could not be incorruptible, but, but uh, or you could be incorruptible, but not necessarily immortal because all of a sudden something could take your life. So you don't die a slow death because of disease or whatever, but you get hit by something that kills you. You know, this is theoretical. Uh, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that our new bodies will be both immortal and incorruptible, not subject to death, not subject to decay. But also he says this when he tries to explain our new bodies. He says, in summary, that our new bodies will be fashioned according to or patterned after Christ's, res Christ's resurrected body. Now, again, I don't, I don't want to push it farther than Paul intends, but it's possible that what he is saying is, if it will be like Christ's body, Christ's body was fully mature as an adult. So, it, again, I'm, it's just possible um, since nothing is said about children being in the new Jerusalem, or the new heaven, the new earth, etc., um, we, we can't say from that that they absolutely won't be, uh, but maybe at least you could say implication, possible implication from 1 Corinthians 15 is that if an infant dies and goes to be with the Lord, that they would not be a six-month-old infant for all eternity. Uh, but rather would be their glorified body would be patterned after Christ's body, which is what 1 Corinthians 15 says, which was uh, a full adult mature body. Now, again, that's just, uh, I wouldn't say merely speculation, but it's uh, not certainly something you could just camp on or settle on as, as fact. All right, the next question says this, um, complementarianism versus egalitarianism. These are technical terms. Can you please briefly present both cases? Well, first, just to define them. Uh, complementarian. Now, by the way, these terms are used in relation to the issue of men and women, and more specifically, men and women in the church, in function, in ministry. So uh, complementarianism would be the view that says God made men and women differently, that men and women are male and female, Thus, they are different uh, to the very core of their being, and God's intention is for there to be different roles for men and women, uh, that they are distinct, and that these different roles complement each other. And specifically, where this usually becomes an issue is in relation to uh, the role of women in the church, more specifically to the issue of uh, women being pastors, elders, or overseers. So usually this is... Now, there are other issues... But this is where it usually gets, uh, if not contentious, at least disagreements from a theological standpoint. Egalitarianism would say this. Well, men and women, egalitarian, they're equal. And they would quote verses like in Galatians, in Christ Jesus, there is neither male nor female, bond nor uh, uh, free, you know, Scythian, Jew, Greek, etc. For Christ is in all, etc. Of course, one of the problems there is that in Galatians, those statements are not talking about function. They're not talking about position. They are talking about equality in regard to spiritual privilege. So in other words, men and women don't get different forms of salvation. 
If you come to faith in Christ and you're a man, you get your sins forgiven, you get new life. If you're a woman, you get your sins forgiven, you get new life. There's no distinction. But the verses are sometimes misquoted, or maybe not misquoted, misapplied to the issue. And that is specifically uh, the egalitarianism would say, uh, because men and women are the same before God, they have the same spiritual privilege, which I would agree with. They would say they can all hold the same offices, and specifically, this is the basis or the attempted basis to say that uh, women could be ordained as pastors, elders, overseers, etc., which is not a view that we as a church would hold. Uh, we certainly believe in complete equality of spiritual privilege between men and women. But we believe that uh, just as Paul te- teaches in 1 Timothy 2, and, and after teaching about uh, when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, one of the basis bases or one of the, the supporting points of his argument is creation. In other words, he, he's basically saying, go back to creation. God made them male and female. That is, he made men and women distinct. They have different roles. They, can, they don't do the same things. Uh, men can't have babies. I mean, that should be an obvious. Uh, and there are things that men can do that women can't do, and women can do that men can't do. It has nothing to do with superiority, inferiority. But when it comes to position of pastor, elder, overseer, uh, we hold to the view that that is a role that God has specifically stated to be for men. So th- those are the terms, though, if you're reading and you run across those terms, those are the technical terms in this debate, complementarianism, egalitarianism, etc. All right, the next question says this, can a person without the assurance of salvation still partake of communion? And the short answer is yes. There would be nothing that I could see why you would maybe ask this. You might be thinking, well, if they're not certain they're saved, should they partake? Well, um, wrestling with the assurance of salvation, th- there are a number of Christians who struggle with that. Uh, who uh, This is, in fact, I don't want to make an overstatement here, but I would say over the last six months, I would be almost certain that if I just counted up all the emails that I get within a week, that I have probably had more emails, not from the U.S. only, but from around the world, from Christians struggling with assurance of salvation. I probably had more questions on this topic than any other doctrinal or theological topic. I get questions on this all the time. Um, And so this is not an uncommon struggle. Uh, People come to faith in Christ, and of course it it can be a good struggle because what it indicates is a person wants to really know with certainty. You know, especially, uh, you know, a lot of people will read, and and a lot of these emails I receive, they'll, man, Matthew 7, 21 to 23 scares me to death. Because in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus said many, not just some, not just a few, many, will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders, and then I will declare, I never knew you, depart from me. So people read that and they say, oh, is that me? Uh, you, know, I, I, you know, am I just kidding myself? Am I just, uh, you know, convincing myself? So, you know, struggling with the assurance of salvation isn't automatically or necessarily a bad sign, like the, there's something wrong with the person. It can be driven by a heart that wants to know for sure and, and a heart that doesn't want to be deceived or deceive himself or herself, etc. So Paul, Paul never in 1 Corinthians 11 where he gives instructions about that say, well, you know, partake 
uh, but not if you're struggling with assurance of salvation. And that, it's a complicated issue because there are a number of reasons why someone may struggle with assurance of salvation. It's not simplistic. It could be a variety of reasons why. Um, but it's, it can be, if a person will work through it, it can be a very healthy growth issue to wrestle with going back to Scripture and saying, the assurance of my salvation depends on the promise of God, not my, you know, achieving or not my doing or in any way. So in other words, sometimes I'm convinced God allows a person to wrestle with assurance of salvation to bring that person even more to a complete selflessness that has absolutely nothing to do with me and everything to do with Christ. And so, you know, wrestling through that can sometimes drive you to that. Do you realize, you know, it just exclusively depends on John 5, 24. Jesus said, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, not shall have, has eternal life and shall never come into judgment, but has already passed from death into life. So what is the basis for our assurance of salvation? It is the promise of God. You have to keep going back to this is what God has said. 1 John 5, 11 through 13. John 3, 16. Just you, go, you keep going back to this is what God says. So it doesn't depend on, you know, how much faith do I have? Do I have this mega faith? I, well, you know what? Little faith in a big object is enough. Little faith in a big God is enough. Childlike faith. So uh, it's not an uncommon struggle. I'm certain as I look out here, I'm certain that there have been a number of people here who've wrestled with the issue of assurance of salvation, as I said. Some people don't, but many do. Some people come to faith in Christ, and uh, for, for a variety of reasons, from that point on, there's never any doubt whatsoever. Uh, but there can be a lot of factors, a person's background, and, and maybe even how the gospel is presented to him or her, just a lot of issues. Uh, but it should not mean, well, until you have absolute assurance, and you're not wrestling, you're not struggling, you shouldn't partake of communion. I don't know of anything in Scripture that would indicate that. Uh, And, by the way, usually, you can't say this always, but most of the time I think it would be safe to say that a person who's really wrestling in in humility, uh, struggling with assurance of salvation, uh, I, I will sometimes say, you know, I can't see your heart and know that you're saved, but it's usually the people who aren't questioning that should be questioned. Because in Matthew 7, the people who are t- that Jesus describes are totally confident. They knew they were getting in. They're shocked that they're not. So they're, they're not. Matthew 7, people don't, aren't struggling with assurance of salvation. They thought they had it. So um, usually if a person is struggling, not always, but usually it's because maybe of personality, sensitivity of heart, other things like that. And um, it's, it's, it can be a good sign. But it, it should be worked through because it's torturous. Those of you who have struggled with assurance know it can really be torturous to, to struggle and wrestle through that. All right, next question says this. Um, were Daniel and the others, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, only vegetarians while they were under the training of Babylon and then returned to eating meat after they had, uh, um, uh, let's see, I can't quite, after they had, don't know that word, sorry. After they had something their own diet or return to their own diet. Uh, you remember the story, Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and his friends are taken to Babylon and they are offered the king's delicacies and they requested. They said, just test us for 10 days. Let us eat only vegetables. And the reason they requested that is because 
the king's food would have had some things that were specifically forbidden in the law of God for Jews to eat, but other things that would have been offered to idols and all of that. So Daniel and his friends uh, requested that they only eat vegetables so as not to violate the law of God. Uh, But then in chapter 10, it does say that Daniel, when it's talking about him fasting, ate no pleasant food, meat or wine, inferring that it was normal for him to enjoy those things. So yes, it does seem to be what is implied. The only reason why they were vegetarians early on was because the king's food would have violated the dietary laws of the Mosaic law that God gave uh, and also could have had things offered to idols which they didn't want anything to do with. Uh, But there was nothing in the law of God telling them that it's more spiritual to be a vegetarian. So there's no reason to believe that if it wasn't something anti-kosher, you know, like pork or something, that they would have eaten meat. All right, next question says this. um, Pastor Brian, please explain the steps a Gentile would have taken to follow the God of Israel. And could they have ever been considered fully Jewish? Well, in answer to the last question, no, they were always still considered, uh, the term that Luke uses throughout the book of Acts is a God-fearer or fearer of God or worshiper of God. For example, Lydia in Acts 16 was a convert to Judaism. She was a worshiper of God. Cornelius in Acts 10 was a worshiper of God, which is Luke's way of saying that he had become, he'd come to believe in the God of Israel. He was a Jewish proselyte, but they didn't become Jewish. They just were converts to Judaism. So what were the steps? There were actually three steps that were involved. If someone wanted to go from being a Gentile to become a part of the people of God, um, this, the system of proselyte induction to the nation of Israel had three parts to it. I'll give you the terms in case you're interested. Milah, Tebilah, and Korban. First was Milah, and it was circumcision. All Gentile men who wanted to be a part of the people of God had to be circumcised regardless of their age. Uh, this was an act to show that they realized and were, were acknowledging that they were sinful at the, at the level of their very nature. That all they, uh, that one of the greatest illustrations of our sinfulness is that all we can produce is sinners. So circumcision, by this act, the Gentile admitted his root sinfulness. Then the second step was tebilah. Tebilah was actually immersion into water, basically baptism, to depict the willingness of the Gentile to die to his Gentile world and his desire to be given new life in Judaism as a believer in the God of Israel. And then the third step, the third, was the, the third phase was called korban, this step involved an animal sacrifice. And when the Gentile offered the sacrifice, the blood of the animal would be sprinkled on him to symbolize cleansing from sin. So those were the three steps for Gentiles to become Jewish proselytes, but they never were considered fully Jewish. Or, you know, you can't be by those steps become just like, you know, no matter what steps you take, if you're not Italian, you, can, you don't become Italian, right? You maybe can become an Italian citizen if you go through all the steps, but you don't actually become Italian. And in a similar way, they became citizens of the people of God, but didn't actually become uh, Jewish. All right, next question is on Genesis 15. Uh, Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16, where... Um, God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them. They will afflict them 400 years. 
and also the nation whom they serve. I will judge afterward. They shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, but, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the question is this. Is the, are these verses saying that there were only four generations of Israelites in the 400 years that they were in Egypt? If so, how could they have multiplied so much? And if not, what does it mean? Well, I don't know if you know this or not, but the question you're asking is maybe way more complicated than you realize. For one thing, it wasn't 400 years. It's pretty clear that the author of Genesis here is using round numbers. It was 430 years, to be more precise. And they weren't really 430 years in Egypt because if you consult Galatians, the time frame seems to be from the Abrahamic covenant to the establishing of the law. So it's not just the time in Egypt. The other issue that's a little complicated is how the writer is using the term generations here. Uh, Is he just using it coming off of what he just said, 400 years using a round number? So four generations just using 100 is a round number of generations. Now remember, people back in Genesis did live a lot longer uh, in general. Uh, So now by this time, they weren't living 900 years by any means, but uh, they would live much longer still and still have children much longer. Uh, So that's the other complicating thing is how is the author using the term generation here? Uh, But, you know, just some factors we do know. I mean, take Jacob just as one example. Jacob basically had four wives. The 12 tribes of Israel came from them. So you had often multiple wives. And so if a generation was 100 years, if a man lived all of that time, uh, he could have lots of children, especially if he had lots of wives. Um, and so it helps us explain, not, to, not that I want to in any way take away from the supernatural aspect of it, if indeed God is trying to say it was supernatural, but this helps explain like Exodus 1-7, which says this, Exodus 1-7, uh, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. And just a few verses later, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the writer of Exodus is clearly indicating massive growth, if not possibly supernatural multiplication. So um, I don't know if that really answers exactly what you were asking, but as I kind of plunged into this this afternoon, I had never really looked at this in that kind of detail. But there there are several complicated, complicating factors here um, that are are really interesting to try. It is possible, in fact, as I was doing the math, if you take the 430 years, now this is if, not all scholars would agree, but if you take the 430 years from the Abrahamic covenant to the establishing of the law, then it's possible that the Israelites were only in Egypt 215 years. Uh, possible. I'm not saying that's the case. So, but the point is it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a little more complicated than just throwing something out there and say four generations. Well, how long is the generation? Does the, the writer of Genesis, how, how long is he in his mind thinking about a generation? 80 years? 40 years? 100 years? So uh, several factors to wrestle through. All right, next question says this. Turn to uh, Hebrews 4 for the answer, though it's not specifically on that. Hebrews chapter 4. It 
So the question says this, Pastor Brian, if Jesus could not sin, and I believe that's a true statement. In theology, this is called the impeccability of Christ. Jesus could not sin, but he did not sin. And the reason he did not sin was not because he could not sin. All right? He could not sin because of his deity, but he did not sin because he did what you and I could do if we would do. And that is uh, take advantage of the spiritual resources uh, that were at his disposal. And you see that when Satan tempted Jesus, he quoted scripture and said, it is written. He didn't say, I am God. My deity will protect me. So Jesus could not sin. He did not sin. But the reason he did not sin was not because he could not sin. He did not sin because he did what you and I can do if we would to not sin. So if Jesus could not sin, that's correct, does that make the temptations he experienced different than the ones we experience since we are sinners and can sin? And I would say no. That is not a correct logical deduction. Now, it does sound logical, and it is somewhat logical, but the problem is it's not scriptural. Because in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the writer of Hebrews says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Now, that's a double negative. In Greek, it's very good grammar. In English, I know it doesn't sound right, but it's very good. And it's just a strong way of saying we have a high priest who can sympathize. Or let me paraphrase. We have a high priest who can relate. He can relate with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. So the writer of Hebrews does not hesitate to hold up the example of Jesus to say, listen, he was tempted in all ways as we are, but did not sin. Now, this does not mean he was tempted with the exact same temptation. In other words, it's obvious Jesus was never tempted to turn on a computer and look at pornography. There were no computers, right? So it's not saying every, you know, uh, he was ne- Jesus was never tempted to, see, uh, to steal a corn dog from 7-Eleven, right? Or whatever. It's not saying it. But he was tempted in all ways, all areas like we are. Uh, tempted in all of those points. So even though I understand where you're going with the logic, this is, this is where we need to be careful. God has created us as, as, uh, as creatures with intellect, emotion, and will. And all of those are good. But we need to always realize that when it comes to intellect, and God has given us minds to think rationally and logically, but where logic starts trumping Scripture, you have to stop. And and a perfect example is that so many Christians wrap themselves around the axle by saying, but the Bible says God is sovereign, God has elected, God is going to save, so why share the gospel? It doesn't really do any good. Or why pray? Let me tell you why you pray. Because James 5.16 says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. We say, hold it. How can it accomplish anything? If God has already ordained what he's going to do, uh, it just it doesn't make sense logically, so I won't pray. Well, don't pray, and you're in disobedience. If you think you've got to be able to figure out everything God has said logically to do it, you're going to be in trouble. So you, you, your logic needs to stop where it starts trumping Scripture. And let God say what he says. He says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You say, well, how does that fit with, you, you don't have to, you, you, you're not going to unscramble that egg. So just, you don't have to understand it to, to use it, take advantage of it. I don't understand electricity, but I don't walk into a room and stay in the dark until I can figure it out. I just turn on the light switch. 
And you don't have to understand prayer to pray. God says pray. You don't have to understand how it all fits. So, uh, so the Bible says here that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, but he didn't sin. So don't start trying to put Jesus' temptations, you know, to say, because wh- wh- where you can easily go with your question here, doesn't that make his temptations he experienced different than the ones we experienced? What you could very easily do here is dismiss the example of Jesus. Well, he's no example to me because he was God, so he can't really relate. Well, if you think he can't relate, you're denying what Hebrews 4.15 says. He can relate. So come to him. Uh, So let Scripture say what it says, even if you can't figure out how Jesus as God, since he couldn't sin, could still be tempted just as we are tempted, because that's what Scripture says. All right, next question, kind of related. Did Jesus have a sin nature or a human nature? He didn't have a sin nature. He had a human nature. Is the sin nature passed down from the fathers or both parents? That is not stated in Scripture, which or how exactly. Uh, There are those who believe that it is passed through the male and that this was the reason behind the virgin birth because the virgin birth protected any male element from seed or sperm being passed to the egg. And so that was God's vehicle or means of of making sure Jesus did not have a sin nature. That's possible. But Scripture doesn't state that specifically. All it does state is that we're sinners by birth, by nature, by choice, by practice. So we are sinners by birth. Uh, But Jesus did not have a sin nature. He had a human nature. But for us, it's easy for us to assume human nature equals sin nature because we don't know any other human who has a human nature that's not sinful. And in fact, there is no other human who has a human nature that's not sinful. But Jesus was not a sinner by birth, nature, choice, or practice. All right, next question says this. What is your opinion of Jesus Calling? This is a book by, I think her name is Sarah Young. Very, very popular. Uh, If you were discipling someone uh, and discovered they were reading it, what would you do? Would you ignore it because you consider the book harmless or warn them because you consider the book dangerous? Again, the, the book, uh, in case you're not familiar with it, it's basically a devotional book by Sarah Young. Um, it is written in the first person. In other words, it is supposedly Jesus talking to you. In other words, it's not a devotional in the, in the typical sense of the term where, you know, if you read a devotional by, by someone, they'll say, uh, the Bible tells us that God loves us and that uh, you can cast all your care upon him. But instead, Jesus calling says... If that's your entry for the day, the devotional, cast all your care upon me because I love you and I care for you and I will uphold you this day. So it's written in the first person as if Jesus were talking. Um, And again, very popular book, especially among, almost exclusively, not exclusively among women. So what would I do if I was discipling someone? Uh, I would give, there are two significant cautions with the book. Number one, because it's written in the first person as if Jesus is speaking, can easily open up someone to additional revelation. In other words, is this... In fact, by the way, Sarah Young does say, and I want to hope to give her the benefit of the doubt, but she does say she was... I don't know the word she uses. I've read what she says, but I can't remember. That she was just... She didn't really write the book. She was just a channel. That the Lord kind of wrote the book through her, which is scary. Because, as you probably know, additional revelation is a trait of all cults. All cults always get more revelation from Jesus. 
going to give you more. More than the Bible. You need something else. Uh, second caution is, because it is in the first person and Jesus is supposedly talking, uh, I know for a fact many ladies read it as if it is the Bible or instead of the Bible. I mean, listen, you've got Jesus talking to you, so you don't need to read the Bible. Why read the Bible? This is Jesus talking to you. So uh, two significant cautions. On the positive side, one thing that's fairly good, if you will, is that Mostly what the book does is it just paraphrases what is already in the Bible. Like I said, 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So the, the devotional entry for that day will say, cast your care upon me because I care for you. I love you. Well, that's basically a paraphrase, a paraphrase of 1 Peter 5, 7. And most of the book, I've, I've not read it cover to cover, but I've read a lot of it, and most of it's that way. So at least what it says, I have not found anything that gets heretical. Maybe certainly cautioned in order or dangerous, but not heretical. Uh, it is light on, if you will, like repentance. I don't know if repentance is ever mentioned in it. Like, you know, um, you need to repent of your sin, and it's, it's all more kind of positive stuff. The Lord's care, the Lord's watching over you, etc. Again, which are themes in the Bible, um, but they're sort of paraphrased in the first person. So, uh, if I were discipling someone, I don't, I don't necessarily go out of my way. This is the first time I think I've ever addressed this. I don't go out of my way to do it necessarily, but if someone asks me, I'm not hesitant to give the cautions. And certainly if I were discipling someone, I would want to talk through what, what is your motivation? Why read that as if Jesus is talking to you when you can read Jesus talking or what he actually says? All right, next question says this. Um, uh, how do you deal with, and this is an interesting question coming off the last one. I didn't purposely put them in this order, but turn to Luke 16 for this, uh, this question. Luke 16. And the question is this. How do you deal with or explain the many accounts professing Christians share in regards to near-death or heavenly experiences? What verses or what discussion can best be used to share truth with especially Christians leaning on these types of stories for comfort, especially during times of grief. And there are a number of passages, but maybe the strongest one is Luke 16. And you know the story, beginning in verse 19, there was a certain rich man clothed in purple. And then Lazarus, they both die. The rich man goes to Hades, and he cries out for Father Abraham to have mercy and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger he says, can't be done. There's a gulf between us, etc. Then verse 27, he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, well, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have Scripture. You want to know about life after death and judgment? And if you want to know, the source is Scripture. It's not someone's experience. But this guy didn't necessarily agree with that. Like so many people today, they don't agree that Scripture is sufficient you got to have someone's experience to cooperate. And they said, verse 30, And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. This is such a strong passage saying, You know what? You don't need someone supposedly coming back from the dead or actually coming back from the dead to what you need is Scripture. So this would be a, a key passage I would turn someone to. Not only that, I would turn them to 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul said he was caught up to the third heaven, and he wasn't allowed to tell what he saw. But people today evidently are allowed, because they tell what they saw or supposedly saw. 
And of course it changes and it's contradictory and it's not reliable. Uh, but people somehow can tell what Paul wasn't allowed to tell. So this passage, 2 Corinthians 12, two of the strongest ones to say, uh, no, the, you don't go to someone's experience, near-death experience, to build your theology of life after death. You go to Scripture. All right, final question of the night says this. Uh, in the book of Revelation, how can we know what is literal or what is symbolic in prophetic writings? As in the judgments of chapters 6 through eight, 18, do we have to resort to I don't know or can we know in some uh, sections? Well, let me just spend the last four or five minutes here talking about this. The book of Revelation is the only book of Scripture that opens and closes with a promise of blessing to those who read it. The assumption behind that promise is that we can understand the book, right? At least to some degree. If you can't understand it, then why read it? Does God just want you to mindlessly read through something so you get a blessing? No. He, the assumption is you can, you can understand it. It's not some mysterious piece of literature that can be twisted any and every way. It is technically called apocalyptic literature, which is the use of symbols with literal meaning. Now catch that. The use of symbols with literal meaning. Uh, you, you can't just make the symbols say anything you want them to say. They have literal meaning. Consider this. There are seven letters to seven literal churches of ancient Asia Minor. Each one ends with the phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The clear assumption is we can understand the message. So hear it. It's not mystical. And then consider this. Consider just the number of passages in the book of Revelation that mention actual literal, literal numbers. Revelation 6.6, 6, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Revelation 6.8, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth. Revelation 7, you have the repetition of 12,000 were sealed 12 times. You know, God could have just said 12,000 were sealed out of the 12 tribes of Israel. Done. But he says, of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. Okay, we get it. 12,000, 12 times. You've got to get this. It's as if the Lord is saying, listen, I'm talking about 12,000 sealed out of all 12 tribes. Revelation 8, 7 through 12 specifies a third, and it is repeated 10 times. Revelation 9, 5 specifies five months. Revelation 9, 16 mentions an army of 200 million. Revelation 9, 18 mentions a third. Revelation 11, 1, there is a command to measure the temple. Measure it to demonstrate it's not the same temple that was in your day, John. Revelation 11, 2, Jerusalem will be oppressed for 42 months. Revelation 11.3, the two witnesses minister 1,260 days. Revelation 11.11, three and a half days. Revelation 12.6, Israel is protected 1,260 days. Revelation 12.14, times, time, and a half a time. Both That phrase comes from both Daniel 7.25 and 12.7, which means three and a half years. Revelation 13.5, the Antichrist reigns for 42 months. Revelation 20, 1,000 years is repeated seven times to make sure we get it. Seven times. And listen, by the way, if you don't believe that the seven time, times repeated thousand years of Revelation 20 is a thousand years, then why in the world, just a few verses later, do you believe that when it says those at the great white throne will be cast in the lake of fire forever? It's the same chapter. So if thousand years mentioned seven times doesn't mean a thousand years, then forever doesn't mean forever. How can you pick and choose one or the other? Revelation 21, 13, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the west. I mean, it's just, God is just overemphasizing to make sure we get it. We're talking about three gates on the east, three on the north, south, 
east, west, etc. Revelation 21, 14 and 21 mentions 12 foundations of the city, 12 apostles, 12 gates, 12 pearls. Revelation 21, 16 specifies the dimensions of the city and then maybe the capstone of all. Revelation 21, 17 specifies the dimensions of the wall and then the text says whether it's measured by an angel or a man. In other words, it doesn't matter if, you're me- if an angel is measuring or a man's measurement. If it's 215 feet, it's 215 feet. doesn't matter if an angel's holding the tape measure or a person. So don't allegorize it. It's 215 feet or whatever the measurement is. So do we have to resort to I don't know? No, we don't have to resort to I don't know. Can we know? Yes. Now certainly that's not to imply that there aren't some passages where in humility you want to say, well, we're not. Like Revelation 13, the mark of the beast, 666. What does that mean? 666. We don't know what that means. You've heard all the theories. 666, you know, chip in your forehead, chip in your hand, mark 666. We don't know what the people living then will know what 666 is. So we only know so much about it. But you don't have to just take the book of Revelation and just throw it in the closet and say, we don't know about anything about it. It's just all so ethereal and and, and, uh, so uh, mystical. No. No. God made it, wrote it so we would understand it. And he tells us blessing at the beginning, at the end. So try to understand it, work at understanding it, have humility where it's hard to understand. Say, don't know, we'll find out someday, either in life or in eternity. But there is a lot of the book of Revelation that we can say, this is what it says. It's a, an apocalyptic symbol with literal meaning. For example, just in closing, if I say to you, listen, Sorry, we're closing the service now. Soon as we're done, I won't be able to talk to you because uh, i got to hit the road. Now, who in this room thinks I'm going to run out on 19th and start pounding on the pavement? Everyone knows. Okay, I know that, you know, the plain literal, if the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. Well, the plain sense doesn't make sense. Brian's not going to run out there and use his fist to hit the road. So that must mean he's got to go quickly. Right? We understand this is the way language works. So when you come to the book of Revelation, if the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. And if the plain sense is a contradiction of the obvious, then just look in the context for the meaning of the symbol. It's not as complicated as people make it. But boy, people try to make the book of Revelation far more complicated than it needs to be. And they start seeing Black Hawk helicopters in the book of Revelation. Oh, my word. It's just no wonder people think they can't understand it. All right. Let's close. Let's stand and close in prayer. Father, thanks for a great Lord's Day. What a uh, precious privilege we have as your people to come together, uh, to encourage one another, uh, to pray with one another, pray for one another, uh, sing together, to study together, fellowship together. Uh, we, we, we don't ever want to take this for granted, knowing that many of our brothers and sisters around the world do not have this privilege, and they would just, they'd long for it. They would give virtually anything for it. So, May we never take it for granted, but always be grateful and thankful for what you give us and always keep in mind the words of Jesus, to whom much is given, of him much is required. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen.